Welcome to the Net Effects Podcast, where Les Ottolenghi and Mark Bavasoto break down how the Fortune 500, the hottest startups, and the best VCs succeed through digital, social, and personal transformation. And now, here are your show hosts, Mark Bavasoto and Les Ottolenghi. We'd love to welcome our listeners to NetFX, the podcast about the future happening now. With me, as always, is my podcast partner and innovator extraordinaire, Mr. Les Odalengi. Hey, Les. Thank you. <laughs> okay, without further ado, we'd like to welcome Scott Wingo, who is the founder and CEO of Spiffy, an on-demand car care platform. Welcome to the program, Scott. Hey, Mark and Les, thanks for having me. Yeah, we appreciate you being on. Super grateful to have you today. And to kind of get things started, for our listeners who may not know who you are, can you give us a little bit of quick background about yourself and your company, Spiffy? Sure. I am a serial entrepreneur here out of the Research Triangle Park area of North Carolina. I have an engineering background, South Carolina undergrad, NC State grad school. After graduating grad school, went to work for a startup in the Northeast and realized I love startups, but not cold weather. So I've been here in the Raleigh-Durham area for all four of my companies. Company number three is called Channel Advisors. Started that in 2001. Uh, it helps brands and retailers sell on eBay and Amazon and marketplaces like that, like Tmall. Took that public in 2013. And then the idea for Spiffy came in 2011, had my first Uber experience. And as an e-commerce guy, the light bulb moment for me was I felt like services are going to go digital. We've seen products go digital. So I wanted to do something there. Didn't have time until 2014 and started Spiffy with the idea of um, how can we provide an Uber level of experience for car care? So no one ever woke up and said, wow, I'm really looking forward to having my tires changed today. So we're here to turn that around. And so everything we do at Spiffy is is kind of app-based, so very digital. There's an app. We do wash, detail, oil change, and now we're just introducing tires. So, yeah, that's what we're building at Spiffy. It's been real fun and, and uh, a lot of huge challenges and have learned a ton with this new offering. Scott, thank you for being here. On, I grew up in the Research Triangle area, so it's a beautiful part of the world and highly intelligent, educated group people and obviously an opportunity to grow businesses there. It's a very entrepreneurial uh, setting now. A couple of things you just mentioned, challenges and then growth. So how big is the organization? How many states? And what are sort of the biggest challenges? We're in 23 markets. So we have about 250 technicians out in the field driving about 200 vehicles. So one of the challenges is we decided early on a lot of the on-demand companies out there use 1099. This has been in the news with the election. As you probably know, in California, they were going to strike down 1099, but then they passed a ballot measure that, that looks like it's going to make it a legal thing. So citizens voted and said, we like this kind of service and people having jobs, which is good. Uh, <laughs> but we decided pretty early on that the experience for an Uber driver is, can someone get me to, from point A to point B without being in a wreck? And you know they're not an axe killer. Um, so pretty hopefully low requirement there. But we decided you know what our requirement is, is can someone take one of my most valuable assets and make it look brand new? or change the oil in it without hurting the vehicle or change the tires. So we decided pretty early on to do that, we really need employees. So all of our technicians are our employees, they're W2 and they drive our own vans. So just give you an idea of the scale. So hopefully that helps with the scale. So these actual employees, so we have about 250 technicians, 200 vans. And then in headquarters, we have about 30 to 40 people. So all in about 300 people in the organization. 
And how do you run that during the sort of COVID world? I mean, it seems like you're already a virtual organization. Has that been an advantage or am I wrong here? You do have to meet up and huddle up or do you keep everything pretty much virtual? We are in Las Vegas. We operate out of the airport there. We have eight vans in Las Vegas. So so they all they all hub at a central location near the airport and then they go out every day. But it is a small team, right? So those 200 people aren't seeing each other every day and they're spread coast to coast in the United States. Here at headquarters, it was relatively easy for us to work virtually because I think of us as, as kind of support for those 23 cities out there across the U.S. So we are typically talking to people that aren't sitting next to us. So going virtual is pretty easy. What was hard for us was the demand during the pandemic was kind of wacky because um, another part of our story we, we haven't hit on yet is for consumers, the bulk of our consumers were at their office park. Well, clearly that's not happening during COVID. So we had to switch that to residential. And then our fleet partners are largely rental car companies. So from kind of March 15th to let's call it June 1, they saw a huge dry up of demand because air travel declined. But since then, rental car and air travel have become uncorrelated, whereas they were previously highly correlated. And that's because let's say you were going to take a trip to uh, San Francisco or something, you know, a business trip, you would definitely rent a car. But even on personal trips now, more and more people are renting cars during COVID because they put so many miles on their vehicles that and if they lease them or whatnot, they're kind of making the economic decision to put those miles on a rental car. So that's a very long way of saying we've had a, a very sharp V-shaped recovery at Spiffy and we're now at pre-pandemic levels on the demand side. Let's dive into that a little more. The last time that you and I spoke in a similar situation like this through Startup Summit, we were to kind of go to that wartime CEO talk. And at that time, I think this was April. And we were looking at, I think you moved into doing a lot of disinfecting type services, right? To the buildings and stuff like that. What has changed from, I know you touched on a little bit, what has changed to kind of give you in that V-shaped recovery from that April timeframe to now current state? So to get to the pandemic, we shifted everything to residential. So of our 23 cities, we were residential. We offered residential services or, or even consumer services in five and the other 17 were fleet only. So one of the first things we did during the pandemic is flipped those to have all residential capability. So kind of any port in a storm kind of a thing. And since it's come back, we've had to slowly but surely turn those off. So for example, in Las Vegas, I don't think we have the capacity to do any consumer services right now. We're, we're booked up with just fleet. So the pendulum swung very hard over to the consumer side. Now it's swung back to the fleet side. And on the facility disinfection, we still do those opportunistically. But you know, at the height of the pandemic, it was probably 20, 30% of our business. And it's, it's a much smaller piece now because the other thing that's happened is you know, we were fortunate in that we were one of the only folks that had access to large quantities of disinfectant product that were COVID effective. So now the supply chains have loosened up and you know, you're, you're starting to see more and more corporate cleaning companies, but, but individuals get access to that. So it was a temporary thing, uh, but it got us through the worst of the pandemic is how we think about it. And when you look at this, um, you've obviously, you've had four companies, so uh, you've been through what would be the cycle, the learning, the everything that you have to do as, as an entrepreneur. For our listeners who are thinking about becoming an entrepreneur, who are already there in a startup, who have challenges in growth, what are some of the lessons learned there in terms of what you had to do in order to be successful? And also, how do you think about failure versus success? The failures of startups I've seen are because as entrepreneurs, we're almost always early. <laughs> so if you kind of start from that perspective, one of the keys of being successful in a startup is just making it to the other end. So I always counsel uh, any when I'm mentoring to kind of say, 
go raise VC, do all that stuff, but always have a plan B, a plan C and a plan D so that you can just survive. Right. Even if it's just like you and a cat kind of making it through to the other side, a lot of times that actually can be what gets you to success. That's probably the biggest lesson I've learned having done this four times is if you can just kind of get through the hard times to the other side, there's light at the end of the tunnel and it's not always a train. Sometimes it is a train and, you know, to be an entrepreneur, you have to be kind of like, there's not a lot of Eeyores in entrepreneurship. <laughs> you have to be kind of like a total Tigger type of a person, right? So almost like foolishly optimistic to the point where you run at the wall, hit your head and get back up and do it again. That's kind of another way of articulating. You just got to kind of have to survive to make it to the other side. And because of that, you know, to your failure question, you're going to fail a lot. I've been fortunate in that I've had three successes out of three. So batting a thousand uh, and who knows what will happen with Spiffy, but so people say, well, how, how have you had such a good track record? And the answer is, A, make sure you survive and get to the dark times. But then B, I'm constantly failing, but I do it at a scale that is not company scale. So at Spiffy, you know, there'll be 10 failures today. So we're running, we're constantly running experiments. We'll, we'll send an email out today that's not going to work. But we didn't bet the company on that. We're going to launch a product that's not going to work. But don't bet the company on that. So I like to use this framework where 80% of what we do is, is kind of pressing the more button. It's things we know that are going to work. But to be an innovator, we can't do that 100% of the time or we're not going to come up with new stuff. So 20% so of the time is more experimental. And of that 20%, a, a little bit of it, it's kind of far out there. you know. So like tires um, we're experimenting with in Raleigh. That one was kind of like three steps ahead of where we want to be. But if we don't do that now and learn about it in two years, when we want to have tires and 50 markets, we're not going to be ready for that. With, if we don't have those learnings that we're doing in a very small controlled way today in one market, Hopefully that gives you a framework for thinking yeah. about, about failure. Now with obviously COVID, we're just kind of moving through this trajectory, hopefully at some point in time, you know, coming out the other side of it. How is it that you kept company morale up and made sure that everyone's on the same page going forward, especially with probably, you know, maybe more of your tech side working at home. I know some probably some of your service people obviously can't, but how do you keep that morale up? Part of what I've learned is, you know, communication cadence is really important. When people are busy and in good times when people are busy, they don't really want to hear from you as the CEO, you know, every day or something like that. But when people get worried and there's a lot of fear, uncertainty and doubt, what we call FUD in the tech industry about the world and their job, then you have to like really crank up the communication. It's part of that wartime CEO thing. So during the worst part of the pandemic, we were doing weekly communications to folks. Um, you know, we did have to do a, a, a reduction. Um, so we, we communicated, you know, and, and if you ever have to do one of those things, it's, it's super unfortunate, but you know, effectively what we said was, look, we're gonna have to do this because of the, you know, what's going on. It's our desire to, bring as many of you back as possible, as quickly as possible. Let's stay in touch. And, and fortunately we were able to do that. Right. So we were able to kind of furlough and, and bring back people pretty quickly and do everything. But in the lack of information, people assume the worst during a crisis. So you have to kind of like play through that chess game and say, don't assume the worst. We're going to have to do this one time. We're only going to do it once. And then we're going to get through and, and make it through the other side. And here's our progress as we go. So you got to really crank up the communication part of, you know, what I've learned over time is to be pretty, I would say not some people take this to this kind of crazy extreme, but, but really transparent in what's going on in the business so that I want the technician out there doing oil changes to understand things as well as the CFO or whatnot. So the more transparency, the better, especially in these times. And when you look at that and you start thinking about uh, sort of the data that goes behind that, obviously you're measuring your PL, but what are those sort of the other key performance indicators? You've got obviously this super strong background in e-commerce 
everybody talks about lifetime value of the customer or they talk about retention rates. What are the most important factors in data that you analyze or you use to manage the business and give you the direction that you're looking for? I love data in the business and this business generates a ton of data. So we'll, we do about 1500 services a day. So you can imagine, you know, there's all kinds of data that comes out of that system. I wish I had some clever stat about how many terabytes it is, but it, it's more than you, you can consume. So it's important to give people some KPIs to think about. I would say, you know, after we'd launched three or four cities, I kind of came to the realization and, and every business has like this different, like what is the, what's the core of the business problem and because we have this commitment to having people and assets, the core here is to make sure that it's an optimization game for us and CAC and LTV matters and all those things. But, you know, to the technician out there changing someone's oil or washing a car, I, I can't talk about CAC LTV to them, right? That That's the marketing team. That's their KPI. So I try to have these KPIs that everyone in the company can understand. And where we've landed is, you know, what is the daily revenue per truck? Um, that one's nice because, it kind of captures a lot of things. It captures inside of their average order value and some e-commerce types of things, but a technician can understand it and we can run a bonus against it. So for example, we have a program where if you get to, you know, every technician has an app and they can look on there and see what their average daily revenue per truck is. We call that ADRT. ADRT. And then you can go and see where you are for the day and then get a bonus. So we bonus them for getting up over, you know, call it $300. So I love that because everyone in the company can understand it and we report it to the board. So from the lowest employee in the company to the highest, everyone understands this metric and it, it really captures the bulk of what we're trying to solve here. Now, now then as you expand from there, there's nuances inside of there. And then we can look at city level data and marketing data that is more CAC LTV and those kinds of things. But for us, it's really this utilization metric that captures revenue. And inside of there, you almost have an implied cash flow per truck and stuff all wrapped up in one metric. So that that's where we settled. And from a startup or even, I guess, an enterprise perspective, when looking at the data, what are the most important factors you should be studying? I've made the decision to be venture backed. So when you're venture backed, you're kind of, you hop onto this treadmill of, you have to constantly, you know, you're, you're getting paid. They call it growth equity because they want you to grow. Right. So that kind of becomes the North star for any venture backed company. So if you're a bootstrap company, it's very different than a venture backed company. So I'll just kind of stay on the venture back trail for a second. Once you kind of have signed up for revenue growth, you got to kind of like almost every metric flows from that. Right. So if you're not growing, you know, everyone's different, but kind of north of 50%, then you're not going to have happy investors. You're not going to get to that next round and keep the treadmill going. It's a lot of the metrics that kind of stem from that, uh, if you will. Now, if you're bootstrapped on the other side, you know, a lot of the metrics may be more on the profitability side because, you know, having my first company was totally bootstrapped. We didn't have VC. So there it was just kind of like, oh my gosh, I need to get an incremental 20 or 30K a month so I can hire that next person because I've got so much demand for what I'm doing and, and I've kind of figured that out. You know, how do I get there? I'm not sure that 100% answers your question, but so then from there flows all the other metrics in the company, like the marketing metrics of CAC LTV. The hardest one is engineering, right? Because there's no great, um, it's kind of this classic funny story where IBM used to measure like thousands of lines of code generated. They call them KLOX. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, uh, that, that's kind of ridiculous, if you will. The engineering folks are the hardest ones to put on some kind of a KPI. Um, some of the Scrum Agile stuff has got some 
there's some metrics that kind of come from that, like the number of stories completed and bugs and escapes. So there's some data there, but that's the hardest part of an organization to have be super data driven. And it's a creative function too. Having come from writing code, I can kind of like understand that perspective. You know, you couldn't have a painter. Um, you wouldn't put them under KPIs like paintings per hour or gallons of paint consumed per day or something like that. So the creative side is the hardest to measure. The easiest to measure is typically like a sales team. And then you have gradients in between. When you look at the sort of the labor behind this, you mentioned the world of 1099 versus the uh, full-time employee. And you've obviously gotten the full-time employee. You've not gone the lift model or um, perhaps some of these other federated models. What seems to be easier? What is more, if you will, tangible for you to create value? Is it having these sort of network effects like uh, Airbnb, or is it being able to control things where you have the ability to scale quality, to do the measurement, to do these analytics? Because it seems to me like you could super scale your business if you went, and forgive me for this analogy, you went to a franchise model or you went to some kind of federated model where you have 1099s and people doing work for you, lots of different places. So there's definitely a, a trade-off, right? So we could go much faster and be in more markets um, if we did go with kind of more of the 1099 kind of a thing. And the trade-off is, and this is kind of where I look at, I go back to, so, so Channelvisor, um, the company I started previously, our number one partner is Amazon. So I, I've had a front row seat of watching Amazon grow up. And I don't think anyone looks at Amazon now and says, wow, that was slow and, and not a great outcome. But they, you know, they, they did very purposely say, we always put the customer first and work backwards. And so that's kind of where we decided to go with that. You know, we will go slower um, if it results in a better customer experience. So, you know, the way we measure that is net promoter score. So we decided pretty early on, if that's our goal, we need this customer feedback. So we actually rate gate our services. So if you've got a car wash or an oil change, we actually won't hit your credit card until you rate. Now, after 48 hours, we will because we're, we're capitalists at the end of the day and we want to get paid. But what that does is it, it creates an incentive. We Something like 85% of our consumers give us feedback. That's, That's very valuable feedback. When we first started the company, we had a hard time getting over kind of like a, a 30 or a 40 net promoter score. But then we, we chewed away at it over time. And now we pretty regularly are, are well over 80. And I would rather be there with really happy customers that are spreading word of mouth than spending a ton of money on marketing and, and kind of doing a 1099 kind of a thing that's less of a quality job. I love marketplaces, but it's not a tool that solves the problem here. There's not some ready set bunch of providers on one side and demand on the other that we can connect, unfortunately, like an Uber or Lyft, where, where you have a lot of people that have free time that'll drive somebody and a lot of people that want that. That's kind of the marketplace they built. Now, one thing that is interesting and you could say is out of line with that is we have decided to do some franchising, but what we're doing is we're doing it in tier two cities. So, so cities that have 500,000 to a million people. So we'll do the top 50 cities in the United States. So we're trying to kind of manage it, if you will. So it's going to be in smaller cities that we won't get to. And then also we feel confident. So they will be required to have W2 folks as well and follow our playbook. And then we have, because of the ratings data and the technician app, and then we get telemetry from the van. We think we've got kind of four fail saves to make sure the quality is at the level that we are. And then another thing I've learned from Amazon is a lot of people don't realize this, but over 50% of the items sold on Amazon are from third-party sellers. And Amazon is able to hold them to a standard that they themselves adhere to. Um, whereas if you compare eBay, you know, eBay doesn't have that. So therefore, the standards actually kind of have slipped over time and, and I think hurt eBay 
eBay grew faster and quicker than Amazon. But I think objectively, if we looked at the user experience today, it's much lower quality than, than Amazon's. And one of the reasons Amazon was able to hold their sellers or franchisees really is the way to think about them to a high standard is by saying, look, we do this. You should be able to as well. And I think that's going to be a unique part of our franchising is because we're mixing in a hybrid model of us owning and operating 50 markets and then you know, the franchisees uh, with their markets, we should be able to hold them to a, at least as high a standard as we ourselves operate. You kind of mentioned marketplaces, but let's just touch on e-commerce in general. The whole idea around the podcast is around digital, social, and personal transformation. So let's touch on digital transformation a little bit. I mean, what do you see as kind of being the biggest digital disruptor in the e-commerce space today or even moving past COVID-19? COVID has accelerated e-commerce, you know, five years in five months. So it's been crazy. It's actually pretty interesting because one of the challenges we face in e-commerce is the shipping capacity. So it's kind of funny. I like to make up these words and see if I can get them to stick. So one of the first times I did this was I called the five-day period between Thanksgiving and Cyber Monday, the Cyber Five, and that kind of stuck. But this one is, I came up with the term shipageddon. So we have this perfect storm in e-commerce where FedEx and UPS are growing their capacity about 11%. E-commerce has been growing 15%. So they're kind of in line, but you could kind of see a day five years out where the line would cross. USPS is not growing at all. If anything, they're shrinking because they they kind of are a money eater in the US government budget. So then COVID comes along and it has accelerated e-commerce from that 15% track to 45% track in Q2. We think in Q3, it was like, call it 40%. And then a lot of people pontificate it'll come way down in the fourth quarter. I've been an advocate that I think it'll actually go back up to 45%. Regardless of if it's 30 to 45% in the fourth quarter, then you have holiday on top of that. So we have what, what everyone calls a peaky peak. <laughs> so this will be the biggest peak period ever. And what's happened is, it, is the number of packages to be shipped will far exceed the delivery capability of everyone out there. So I call that ship again. There's like this perfect storm of shipping. That's a challenge we face as an industry because what you don't want to have happen, what could hurt e-commerce is everyone wants their holiday gifts to show up by 1224 and everything ordered after 1217, 1215, 1211 doesn't make it. You know, that that's never happened. Uh, there was a period of time in like, I think, 03 or 04 where that happened, but no one remembers that. But this could be a really cataclysmic shipping year. So I'm, I'm a little worried about that. So I need to order but all in, my stuff right now. Yeah. All listeners order everything <laughs> by... I wouldn't go much past Cyber Monday. Um, Wow. I think you'll have another week in there, but it's going to be tough. Oh, my Uh, goodness. (laughs) But, you know, what gets me excited about e-commerce, the biggest trend there is brands are going direct to consumer, and that's really disrupting things. You know, you had a world already being disrupted, and that's just accelerated it. So Nike, for example, you know, five years ago, almost 90% of stuff Nike sold was through a, a channel partner, and now they're trying to flip that. You know, what's that mean for Foot Locker and Macy's and, and all these different retailers, every one of their brands is now kind of going direct. I think it's a rough time to be a retailer. And then it's really interesting if if you kind of play this out, if every brand's trying to go direct to consumers, then that's a weird shopping experience as a consumer, right? If I go to Bonobos and Nike and this one and this one. So I think it creates this opportunity for someone to kind of like, A, help these brands do this. There's a whole economy growing out of that. But then B, how do, what's the discovery look like down the road? You know, when the world looks like all these brands kind of that you have to go and find yourself and order from directly, you know, will there be new technologies? Will someone like a Shopify capture that? Will someone else come along? Um, Will Amazon capture it? It's kind of a really interesting time in e-commerce with this brands going direct trend. And it seems like that 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 has 
as you just said, some potential for other intermediaries, you know, Amazon being one of the biggest ones, of course. Does Amazon continue to be this dominant force in the near future or midterm? And you mentioned Shopify. Clearly, if I'm a grocery retailer, let, let's just say I'm, I'm medium or low end, I still got to figure out how to make a profit even if I'm going direct and I've got to get around some of the barriers that might exist between me and my customer. So what does the mid and short-term future look like on the retail side online? So having watched Amazon for 20 years, it, it sometimes feels like they're a relentless, you know, Borg kind of coming in and assimilating everything. And it's kind of funny. There are companies that have stood up against them and won, uh, but then Amazon just acquires them. So, so it's like, you know, being about Zappos <laughs> and things like that. So Shopify is interesting because I do think they do have a shot at, at kind of making inroads against Amazon or, um, and it's this brand trend going direct by offering all that infrastructure, Brands don't like Amazon because Amazon has this well-documented history of coming out with competing brands, right? So they have a Casper clone. They've got a um, they've got an Allbirds clone. You know this kind of a thing. So brands don't they have a love hate 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 relationship with Amazon. Many of them sell there because they kind of have to. But at the end of the day, they don't like Amazon's pricing power. They don't like the competing products from a private label perspective. And yeah, so so I, I do think that that is this really kind of chink in their armor is if the consumer wants to have a branded experience and not Amazon basics, what happens to that over time? So the jury's still out. I, I think they'll be, this is an area, you know, if I wasn't doing Spiffy, that'd be fun to start something because I think there's a lot of opportunity, even in an industry that's over 20 years old, there's so much chaos caused by the digitalization that there's, there's more opportunities out there. So pull out your crystal ball. Is there ever a time that Amazon buys Shopify? Shopify, it's hard to wrap your head around this, but they're bigger than IBM now, um, which just crazy. blows my mind. Yeah. And it's kind of funny because IBM had the leading e-commerce platform for a long time, but they always kept it up at the enterprise installed software. So it got totally eroded by you know, software as a service aimed at the SMB, which is just a fascinating case study. So I don't think Amazon can buy Shopify. I think, I think the size... I guess they could buy anything at 1.8 trillion. That would be a big bite, but you know, I don't think so. Okay. So I was going to make a quick kind of pivot here. And another area we have to touch on is the social transformation aspect. And as we know, as we're kind of moving into this certain economy and just the volatility, volatility of a lot of things and your company and the companies you're associated with, how are they handling kind of the diversity and inclusion movement? I read a lot around that and I find it's like hard to be actionable in a company around a lot of it. So what we do is we just put our head down and just try to create as many jobs as we can. And, you know, uh, we, I don't keep a bunch of data on this, but I think we've created a ton of opportunities within our technician base for anybody. You know, what's interesting is a lot of those folks don't have a college education. It's a very kind of quote unquote blue collar kind of a group. And, you know, one of the companies I admire what they've done is Starbucks with the barista you know, kind of concept where you could call that, you know, People call people that work in fast food burger flippers, right? So to take something like that and put some honor around it and kind of say, there's, you know, we're going to create this role and you're more, you've got a craft kind of part of what you do. Um, we've tried to do that with our technician and at the same time, give them a career path, right? If you come to Spiffy and you work hard and learn, we want you to have unlimited opportunities. So to me, 
you know, regardless of your gender, color, anything at all, you know, we don't care. We just want you to have a career path. And if you work hard, you can walk up that career path. So that's what we're trying to do in our little part of the world. We, all, we also want to pay you a living wage. Um, this is one of the downsides, I think, of the 1099 is you get a lot of people in there that kind of are running their own little business. And I don't think they make smart economic decisions. A lot of times they don't understand when you do 1099, a lot of the taxation issues and stuff. So within our world that we can control, I think the W2 thing's nice. We pay our technicians north of $15 an hour, which, uh, you know, and depending on the market we're in, we'll pay more. So we pay them a living wage and then we give them an opportunity to learn and advance up from there. And, you know, th- this is, um, as Mark said, something an area that we've observed, identified and see the trends but there's the social transformation side of the world. Uh, part of it is diversity and inclusion. Another part is obviously environment and then sort of social issues or social justice. What do you see as for e-commerce, the big things that they, that the e-commerce, if you will, market or industry needs to do in order to be conscious of the social changes, the environment, uh, the social justice and so on that really kind of relate to where the world may be going? I'll backtrack a little bit. I forgot to mention on Spiffy is being as sustainable as possible is just part of our DNA. Um, so one example is we wash every car on a mat. Um, so we bring the water with us. We use very little water and grain chemicals, but we still do use water. We wash every car on a mat and that acts like a little bathtub for your car. It catches all the runoff and we suck that up out of the mat back up onto the vehicle and then we reclaim all the water. We recycle all the oil and we have a partner here in the Triangle area, but they can do this nationally called PRTI. And they actually have this technology that will take a tire and demanufacture it and turn it into energy. Wow. uh, Oddly enough, they turn it into cryptocurrency, which is like a, we could do a whole nother podcast on that. I don't hundred percent understand it. (laughs) Uh, it, There's some chemistry in there that happens that that's way beyond me as a computer software guy, but it's the most environmental friendly way we've found to deal with tires versus landfills. Um, I love that. Turns it into cryptocurrency. I got, I got to know about that at some point in time. That's awesome. Okay. So, but then in e-commerce, so one of the things about e-commerce is I think, you know, what's cool about e-commerce is actually more efficient in many times. So if you think about the number of times a product moves, e-commerce is more efficient because the product gets to you through less cycles. So where we're inefficient is, you know, in my house, I'll have four different deliveries from four different companies. So at some point we need to put all that on one truck. I think that'll probably end up being the Amazon truck, but we'll, we'll, we'll see. The important thing is to have a diversity. So having a diverse set of opinions is just smart, right? Because our customers are diverse. So therefore we should at the board level, the employee level, all levels of the company, not just the customer level, you should have a diverse set of inputs. So I think that's the most important thing to do is just make sure that, you know, we all know what the United States looks like. And if that's your customer set, then across your company, you should have as much diversity as possible. Not for checking some box, but because it'll actually make it a better company. So I actually think the dog here is the, you know, the dog in the tail kind of thing. Yeah. So the, the, the meat of the matter here is just making your company better. And then the nice output of that is it will make you more diverse just generally. You know, from that aspect and, and to kind of bring this to a, a more personal aspect, I mean, for yourself, as you're navigating this pandemic and then hopefully pushing through the pandemic in the near future, how have you personally transformed yourself from a business level and then a personal level? I always have to come back. It's easy to get bummed out during these times and kind of in a depressed state. Um, and I know that there's been a lot of mental health things going on here. And, you know, the one thing that's always frustrating, I, I stay away from government stuff as much as possible. And what was frustrating about it is, 
they always look at things from, you know, how do I get reelected or something like that? Not, and as entrepreneurs, we look at risk and reward. So shutting down the country sounds good, but you got to think through like, what are the, yes, you're going to save lives on one side, but then like, what's the mental health issues that you're creating on the other side? And so it's always frustrating to me that people don't look at these balanced kind of side things. So it's very easy to get bummed out, you know, and in a depressed state. And where I always come back to is this framework of what can I control? I can't control the outcome of this election. I can vote and certainly I did that, but that's like my one little one in 300 million input into the system. I can't control that system. So if I find myself spending thought cycles on it, I'm kind of like, why well, I can't have any control over that. If I, if I can just focus on stuff I can control, it always works out better and it always makes me happier and I always feel better if I do that because I did something right. I called a customer. I talked to, a, I hired somebody. I did a partnership. So during the pandemic, it's easy to slip away from that, right? And spend time on social media and get drawn into this. You know, all that stuff's designed to get you to this angry or depressed state. So you click more. So I, I try to have all these stop gaps from, from not doing that. You know, very, so I don't spend time on Reddit. I, I spend very little time on social media because I found that that, if I kind of reflect and say, wow, I got kind of bummed out yesterday. What was it? I'd be like, you know, I, I read this tweet and I went to this thing and I did this. And then suddenly I was in, you know, I was worried about this, some, this thing I couldn't control. And I just got to like stop doing that. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so I, I try to avoid all those things uh, in, in, you know, if at all possible. Very wise. Very wise. We are close to our rapid fire. What other questions do we have for Scott? Well, I think that, you know, we, we've touched on all things that we, we want to touch on. So I think we can now push, you know, to, I know Scott's a busy guy. I don't want to take too much more of his time. So I think we can move into a set of rapid fire questions if you want to kick that off. Yeah. So Scott, every one of our podcasts has a little bit of a rapid fire as we get into getting to know you better. We want our audience to know you better as well. And so five questions. Here's the first one. Favorite movie. Star Wars. Favorite actor. Mm, Harrison Ford. Okay, there's a Star Wars theme going on here. Okay. Uh, celebrity crush. I don't really have a celebrity crush. Oh. You could set Harrison Ford. It's more <laughs> of a bromance, I guess. There you go. Favorite business book. Mark will know The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. That's, that's, that's a just fantastic my, my, book. One of my favorites. Yep. One of my favorites as well. It's all about resilience and all about doing the things you need to do. Um, yeah. If you'd asked me five years ago, I would have said um, good to great. I love that. I love good to great. Pretty great is amazing too. Then the one thing our followers should know, or you think they should know, and certainly should focus on as a priority in the next 12 months. Grind out every day and punch through to the other side of this thing. It's going to get better. Wise what? advice. Wise, Wise advice. advice. Yeah. All right. This has been the NetFX podcast where you listen to great technology leaders and learn how you can take advantage of the digital network world around us. Scott, thank you so much for coming on. We are super grateful to have you and we appreciate you taking time to do this with us today. Thank you. Thank you, Scott.